Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. When you are faced with a scary diagnosis like that, hope is so powerful. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing this President's Day? I am good. I just um, realized it was President's Day um, like three minutes ago. I apologize to our founding fathers, um, <laughs> right. but uh, now now I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. How are you today? I am good. I'm good. You know, I was thinking um, uh, about uh, the show. You know, one thing that we have never done on this show is give a shout out to uh, the person who does the intro for the podcast. Uh, and, and it, it really is a great story, especially, uh, especially now with everything that's happened, uh, within the past, I guess, three months, four months. Uh, but so the, uh, the baritone voice you hear, uh, on the intro to the podcast is, uh, our friend judge Tim Walmsley, uh, who is a superior court judge here in Chatham County and, uh, and, uh, a very good friend of ours and judge Walmsley, for anybody who doesn't know, was the uh, judge on the Ahmad Arbery trial down in Brunswick, Georgia. And uh, and I just wanted to give a shout out to him. First of all, he does a great job on the intro. Uh, but second of all, uh, I really, really was impressed with how well he handled a uh, high profile case uh, with a lot of contentious issues. If you recall, there was a, a motion by the defense lawyers in that case to have some of the civil rights leaders like Jesse Jackson removed from the courtroom. Um, and uh, just a number of things, that, you know, lots of I think and another thing that he did, I, I know, is they, they did their jury selection with over a thousand jurors uh, during COVID and were able to get through that and then get a jury. And um, and I, I really thought uh, that we should just give a shout out to, to, to Judge Walmsley. Uh, you know, for what a great job he did in that trial, but also um, for, you know, doing a great job on our intro. And we're so appreciative that he was willing to do that. Totally. I was on and um, I a, a clip from from the trial came up and it was him. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I know him. It's yeah, like the closest right. I am to getting TikTok <laughs> famous is knowing Judge Walmsley. So. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Thank you, Judge exactly. Walmsley. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so speaking of sort of you know, our, our high profile friends, we have a very exciting guest, um, on our show today. Yes, um, we do. so we have BB fell on the show. Um, BB, thank you so much for joining us on this president's day. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I am so excited uh, to talk to you and about what you've accomplished. Um, and about the case that you're, we're going to talk about today. Um, but before we get into it, I want to tell our listeners that maybe, um, don't know you or do know you and want to hear more about you. Um, a little bit about your background. Um, so Bibi is a trial lawyer in California. She is a founding partner at Fell Law, um, and she's also a partner at Athea Trial Lawyers. Um, and you can look her up at fellfirm.com. That's F-E-L-L firm.com. Um, Bibi, one of the many reasons I'm so excited to have her on the show today is she is one of the few women attorneys to uh, have received a verdict of 100 million dollars. That's right. $100 million as lead <laughs> trial counsel. Um, a little bit about BB. She's a national board member for, um, ABOTA, which we talk about a lot, a great organization. We talk about a lot on the show. Um, she's re received the outstanding trial lawyer award and outstanding advocate award from consumer attorneys of San Diego. 
Um, in 2018, BB was one of three finalists for Consumer Attorney of California's Consumer Advocate of the Year. We talk about Consumer Attorneys of California on the show a lot too, I feel like, Steve. Right. Um, yeah. For their awards. And um, that was for the case that we're going to talk about um, here in a minute. Um, in 2020, she was uh, named Trial Lawyer of the Year for, by Pepperdine Law School. She's been a member of tons of great organizations that we hear about on the show, including the Daily Journal's Top 100 Women Lawyers. Um, she's a San Diego, uh, top 50 San Diego super lawyer, top 25 women super lawyer. Um, she's just out there crushing it, but <laughs> that's not all, Steve. She's given back. Yes. Um, she like... Um, what we talk about in the show a lot and what's so cool about the guests that come on our show is their willingness to share their knowledge with other lawyers. Um, and that's one of the things that BB does. She teaches um, advanced trial advocacy at um, University of San Diego Law, and she serves as the program director for the National Institute for Trial Advocacy's um, Pacific Deposition Skills Program. Um, and in addition to that and all her, her law related, um, giving back, um, BB also does something really cool, which is, um, she serves as a parent partner to parents of children that have been diagnosed with, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to try it, Steve. I'm going to, I'm going to let hepatoblastoma. Okay. Nice. Nice. Right. Yeah. Um, BB, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about what that is and how and why you got involved? Yeah, so uh, hepatoblastoma is a rare liver cancer that affects children primarily under the age of, of five, or really mostly under the age of three. Um, and in January of last year, 2021, my youngest daughter, who was four years old at the time, was diagnosed with uh, stage four hepatoblastoma. And we uh, we didn't have anyone to talk to. We didn't really know what it was. We didn't know what the treatment course was going to be. We didn't know what to expect as parents. We didn't know where the center for excellence was. If we wanted to go to the best oncologist and the best surgeon, um, we just had no, no idea. There was no path forward for us because of how rare the disease was. My daughter was the only one in her hospital who had been diagnosed with hepatoblastoma in that year. So it was really important to me, you know, I'll fast forward a little bit. We did find the center for excellence. We took her to Cincinnati. We dropped everything and lived there. Um, she had life-saving surgery. She is cancer-free now. She's been cancer-free for eight months. Um, and so fast forward, when we got through that journey, it was really important to me to take some of that knowledge that I gained over the course of our journey and hopefully provide some guidance to newly diagnosed families um, so that they wouldn't be in that same position that, that we were in with really not knowing what to do. Um, I think that of all my legal achievements, I think that's probably my most important one. Yeah. And the reason I say it's a legal achievement is because, as you both know, in especially in injury cases, we have to learn to speak the language Right. And we have to learn to translate the language. And so um, one of the skills that I've built in the course of trying cases is to digest really difficult information and then learn how to communicate that to lay people. And so I hope that I am able to help families in a very real way using that skill. 
Well, that is such good news about your daughter and uh, just really important work that you're doing, giving back. And so uh, so we thank you for that. Um, we should also mention, Yvonne, that if you want to look up uh, BB, you can go to fellfirm.com and um, and read all about her and her great firm. Yeah, I did. Me- I did mention. Did you? OK, I, I totally I even, missed that. Thing. I even I even spelled we're, it. But... We're, we're doing a second. We're doing a second plug then. <laughs> we're doing. We just want to make sure. <laughs> Maybe I, I was spaced out. I don't know. <laughs> you never know. People are listening to this. They're driving. We got to hit them with the information as many that's times right, as that's we right. can. Um, so that's that's <laughs> bellfirm.com. Um, did you mention the website? so and by the way this is the great charles podcast i don't know if steve mentioned that when we got started Uh, okay well anyway so um one of the reasons that we were talking about um about bb's work and her own personal experience before we started um recording was because of the case that we are going to talk about today um and this is as we mentioned uh at the beginning this is pretty high profile case i managed to hear a lot about um, some of the pseudo slash fake science behind this, but not actually about this um, specific guy and and what he did and how he misled people. Um, so I, I was really interested in reading about this. Um, and I, I'll kind of get into why a little bit later. But um, before we talk about the case, let me give a brief overview and then BB can fill us in because there's so much that goes into the background of this case. Um, so BB represented uh, plaintiff Dawn Cowley. Um, she had been diagnosed with treatable stage one breast cancer, and she had had surgery to remove um, a tumor, but she was um, really concerned, like many cancer patients, about having recurrence or having it coming back. And so she was looking into treatment options. And we'll talk a little bit about how she went down this road, but she ended up pursuing um, treatment with Robert Young, um, who you may have heard about in the news. Um, there was a lady who mentioned him on Oprah way back. Um, he had a New York Times bestseller. Um, book holds him out himself out as a doctor and scientist. And he's sort of famous for this pH miracle approach. The idea behind this approach was that um, you needed to make your body um, less acidic and more alkaline. So one of the things that young told people or said was that there was no such thing as a cancer cell, that a cancer cell was once a healthy cell that had been spoiled by acid. Um, and uh, one of the things he would tell folks was that you, um, you didn't need surgery to remove the ter- tumors that you needed to quote, pee your way to health. Um, because that was the way to sort of, that was part of getting your body more alkaline. And so anyway, among the other things that he would do for his, um, patients to use the term term loosely was they would have extended stays at his ranch, um, in California, two to 3000 per night, um, dollars, two to $3,000 per night. Um, and his victims would basically have these really restrictive diets, only raw fruits and vegetables. They wouldn't be, they'd be denied pain medication because that was too acidic. Um, and they would get, uh, expensive IV treatments that were basically baking soda. Um, 
And Dawn, Dawn Kelly, um, pursued this, pursued this treatment. And we'll talk a little bit more about how and why she became, you know, a believer, or why, why she really pursued this. Um, but she eventually couldn't even afford it. So then she started um, working for Young, um, helping market and sign clients in exchange to get her treatment. Um, of course, as you might expect, where the case is leading this treatment, wasn't really treatment at all, not medical treatment. And so by the time Dawn finally went to see an oncologist, her cancer had spread um, to her spine and her femur and it had become terminal stage four cancer. BB um, ended up representing Dawn in her case for fraud against Young, specifically claims for intentional misrepresentation, negligent misrepresentation, um, false promise and negligence. Um, so in 2018, BB brought this case um, to a San Diego jury who I, I, one of the news articles I read said that they deliberated for about three hours. I don't know if that was total or, or, or specifically on the, on damages, but um, that, was sure total. that was total. Right. Um, so that tells you a lot. Um and they awarded Don a, a $105,356,000 verdict. Um, the jury found um, they awarded 576000 in past medical expenses, 280000 in future medical expenses, $5 million in non-economic damages, $84.5 million in future non-economic damages, and $15 million in punitive damages, which, as we all know, is not easy to get punitive damages, period. Um, they also, as part of their special verdict form, found that the plaintiff was not negligent as all, at all, um, which is important, especially because BB had to walk this line between um, showing folks the the ridiculousness of of Young's methods, but also showing why it was reasonable um, for Don to trust him and why he was in a position where people would have trust in his methods. Um, there's so much going on here. I know my summary was all over the place. Mm. Um, BB, one of the things that I I wanted to start in before we got too far into some of the things that Young did was talking a little bit about Dawn and and sort of her background and how she ended up um, finding Young in the first place. Yeah, Dawn had a really interesting history. Um, she grew up in a family that was part of a, a group of, you know, holistic kind of treaters and followers. Um, I think there was probably some drug use involved with her uh, parents' generation. And really, it was a little bit cultish. Mm -hmm. um, so they had very fringe ideas and kept a very tight hold over their members and the children of their members, shielding them from the outside world to try to indoctrinate them with, with that particular cult's beliefs. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so she's already coming from, I guess, sort of a background where she's not, um, you know, she's been taught maybe not to trust traditional medicine. Mm -hmm. And then, so was it, was I right in, in what I saw, I think was, this was in your closing that she had, she had pursued traditional medicine, at least for that first tumor, but was kind of, um, but wanted to explore other options in terms of, of based at, you know, kind of coming out of a fear of whether it would come back. Yeah, that's, that's accurate. So she started traditional 
treatment just by, you know, going to an OBGYN who caught the lump, who then <laughs> referred her to a surgeon who was going to remove the lump, which they did. Um, unfortunately, when they removed the lump, the margins were not clear. And so what they were recommending was that she would go back for another surgery to take out more tissue and hopefully clear her body of all of the cancer cells. And it was at that point that she felt like, wait a minute, you know, I followed traditional medicine. I did the things I was supposed to do. And now you're telling me to do more. And that's where the distrust that is built over decades creeps in, right? This idea that um, doctors get rich by keeping people sick instead of making people healthy. The idea that um, a small group of human beings without scientific knowledge and without scientific expertise somehow know better and have uncovered this conspiracy. So that distrust, that doubt started to creep in and a family member was the one who was really pushing her towards a lot of these alternative views. Gotcha. Yeah, because she ended up, so she next her with um, Mr. Schmidt, I think, right? Who starts sort of, um, who tells her about Young and about Young's, um, I guess Young's books and Young's um, classes. Yeah. So Young, uh, you know, he had his New York Times bestseller and he had written a, a few other books as well. And he would teach his sort of evangelists who were all throughout the country using his method and selling Young's theories. So Schmidt for Miss Callie was exactly that. He was a young evangelist. So when she saw him, he uh, drew some of her blood, looked at it under a microscope and told her about how unhealthy it looked. And that if she wanted to keep from the cancer coming back, she first had to focus on the health of her blood. And that's when he started introducing Young's theories about um, acidosis and how in order to keep your body healthy, you need to make sure that you're providing the most alkaline environment possible. Yeah. And so this is what I was sort of alluding to earlier on was like, you know, I feel like a different version of this, not necessarily for cancer, but like, you know, there are celebrities that have, have absolutely sort of toted that idea of like drinking more alkaline water and, um, and focusing on, on the pH of your, of your diet for beauty or for health, you know, so it's not, I mean, that has been out there pretty mainstream by pretty famous people. Yeah, they charge, you know, five bucks a bottle for alkaline water. You know what? If you get tap water in San Diego, it's alkaline. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And it, right. it's just unbelievable to me how much people will latch on to an idea like this that really has no scientific basis. But because somebody they know or somebody famous has endorsed it. Um, people are spending a ton of money to support this faux health industry. Yeah. I mean, so you have it out there for people who are doing it for maybe um, um, health reasons or cosmetic reasons, but you know, they're not, it's just wanting to look better or feel better or whatever. And that's, that's without putting in to it, the whole element of somebody who's had cancer or who is sick and who is vulnerable and potentially desperate. Uh, so I think it's, it's so 
me reading about it, it felt very understandable because I feel like there are some people who will take that leap just to look better or lose weight or something. Um, but so, so Dawn starts kind of following, um, she reads Young's book. She starts following, I guess, his advice or Schmidt's advice. And she's following this really strict diet. And I guess for a while she's feeling better because, um, maybe in part because she, you know, the diet is, you know, maybe she's getting more nutrients or, you know, initially she's feeling better because of that. That was, I guess, the sense that I got from it. Yeah. I mean, she went from eating, uh, like most of us do pizza, hot dogs, you know, the things, the things that taste good <laughs> yeah. to being on a diet that was strictly fruits and vegetables. Um, so I think a lot of people who do that experience a, a spike in energy, they lose weight, they feel better about themselves. I mean, there are a lot of benefits to eating a healthy diet, getting rid of, of cancer just isn't one of them. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I wrote this down and now I forget what kind where I wrote it. That she went to like a... Um, she ends up feeling so sort of passionate about it that she gets and she ends up taking the class. Um, what's it called? Do you remember Steve? Like My, microscopy? Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she ends up, you know, that's at, at that point, right. She's not, um, she's not necessarily concerned about her cancer yet so much as she's just bought into, she feels so strongly about it that she wants to be one of his evangelists, I guess. Right. She thinks that she found the answer to health. And Don Kelly is an incredibly caring woman. And so if you find the secret, the answer to heal 
everybody from, I mean, you'll see this in his books, heal everybody from everything. Right. Right. Um, you know, wouldn't you want to be part of, uh, saving the world? And so right. she found something she thought she understood. She thought it was a good thing. She thought she was saving herself. She thought she could save other people. She invested a little bit of money to buy a microscope, take these microscopy classes so that she could then bring more people in on this big, healthy secret. Got it. Yeah, so some of the claims that, uh, you know, just so one thing I definitely want to talk about is some of the claims that were made by uh, by Mr. Young, um, who held himself out as a doctor, who basically held himself out as a medical expert. He wasn't any of those things. And we'll get into that as the as the trial goes along. But but some of the claims he made is not only would it cure cancer, but it would also cure heart disease, diabetes, lupus, osteoporosis. Uh, that it could basically cure everything. And and I know, B.B., you said it was a, a little bit of money, but I mean, she invested about $16,000 into becoming uh, one of these, uh, my, I don't know what the term is, a microscopist. There you go. <laughs> exactly. And, and, yeah. in, and in basically reading blood and, uh, and, in, and in essentially, and then essentially she would be turning more people on to Mr. Young's um, books, onto his products, and you know, possibly even sending them to his ranch where he could, uh, you know, charge them two thousand to three thousand dollars a night. Yes, she did that, and you know, it's interesting that everybody is stumbling over this word microscopy. <laughs> right. I mean, that that's part of the strategy of his books. I mean, if you read his books, they are very difficult to understand. There are big words and they sound really scientific and right. smart, right? So um, I can see these are very crazy things we're talking about. These theories are crazy, but well, it, yeah, it's easy to see how people yeah. don't understand it. Right? Well, and one, of, one of the things, I mean, you know, and, and I know that, you know, part of his, uh, you know, uh, shtick, I guess you would say, is that, you know, he was just far ahead of his time and he was, you know, far ahead of the medical industry and the medical industry, you know, kind of some of the stuff that we hear uh, today, unfortunately, about how, you know, that the the medical industry is, you know, only driven by dollars and, that they, and they're not really helping people out. And there might be some truth to some of that. But um, I, I, I was wondering, you know, in reading your closing I, I mean, there, there, you certainly developed just a ton of evidence on what he had done and, and sort of like, you know, you called him a snake oil salesman, which I thought was a really good way of, you know, sort of once you put everything together. But did you have a sense or did it come out in the trial of how he rose to such popularity? I mean, like how he was able to sell this because he sold over 10 million books. Um, so obviously a lot of people uh, listened to him and believed him. Yeah, I mean, his books really launched him because once once you have a book you can hold up and show people, it's all of a sudden now you're the expert because you wrote a book on it, right? Right. And so his book really launched him, um, uh, you know, going on some shows like Oprah, huge, obviously, for his, uh, for his footprint. And, you know, there are different uh, organizations that have very fringe beliefs that were holding him up and touting his new theories as the next best thing. So it, it's something that started slow and just kept snowballing, snowballing. And as soon as he hit Oprah, he was off. 
and it's it's almost like that old saying, you know, like how where, how do you boil a frog? Is you put him in water and you slowly turn up the heat. I mean, he he gets to the point where he's telling people, you know, surgery is bad for them, biopsies are bad for them, tumors are good for you, so let the tumor stay. I mean, it, it, it's just insanity. But yet, uh, so many people were were. Um, trusting in this man who who held himself out as this expert, and 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 again, as we said, part of um, the evidence, both in this case and in a criminal trial, were that he he basically had none of the expertise he was holding out, and had to admit that he wasn't uh, a doctor, wasn't a research scientist, wasn't um, you know an expert in in natural medicine. He wasn't anything. He was just uh, a bullshit artist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. One of the things in your closing, BB, which is where I got a lot of sort of the facts that I um, that I didn't, you know, pull from the news articles or or whatever, was that I think one of the things that you did a really great job about was, you know, really painting a picture of kind of how um, sort of like duplicitous and two faced he sort he was by like one of my favorite examples. And I just think it was so it stuck with me right away. I feel like I'll always remember it is this idea that, you know, he had these patients on these strict diets, but he had hidden like (laughs) potato chips and stuff for himself to eat. Eclairs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I just have this visual, right. Of all these patients following the strict diet and him like sitting in his cupboard, hiding with a bag of potato chips. Yeah. I also saw, um, it was, it was a video about, talking about you and about this trial. And I can't remember if it was your paralegal or, um, or co-counsel, but they were telling the story that I really want you to tell about how it came together, um, with, um, his hair. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I have to say, I think that was my favorite moment in the courtroom. (laughs) So, you know, I had, I had purchased everything he had ever written every article, every book. And I had this stack of all of his publications. And what I had planned to do in closing was to take some of some of what he said and kind of use it against him. And so I'm holding up these books, I'm opening them up, I'm reading. And then as I finish getting the little piece that I need, I close the book and I set it down next to me. Well, as I did that for one of the books and I set it down, I noticed a picture of a, of a bald man on the back of the book. And I'm looking at Robert Young with a full head of hair. <laughs> and so it just, you know, they tell you not to ask questions you don't know the answer to in cross-examination. <laughs> I could not help myself. <laughs> so I put I put it the book on the Elmo and I project up on the screen this picture of him without hair and I ask him is is this you? And you could feel his anger. He, his face got beat red. I thought he was going to just jump out of that chair and come at me. And then he did this wild thing where he flipped from anger to tears and started sobbing on the stand. And I, again, broke all the rules and said, why are you so upset? I asked the why question. He said, well, because in that picture, I'm with my my ex-wife and she left me because of all these lies, which then opened the door for me to get in um, that he, yes, he was sad about his ex-wife, but he had impregnated somebody else and had a six-year-old child with somebody else. And I mean, it, he, he opened the door in that crazy set of antics for me to get in all sorts of other bad behavior 
So it yeah. was it was kind of one of those wild moments in the courtroom that you never think is going to go well. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and you know, part of it was because I think he had said that, you know, in addition to cancer, that this alkaline diet could help you with a whole lots of things, a whole bunch of things, including hair loss. So but you basically got him to admit that he you know, that that's not how where his hair came from. Right. So he ultimately yeah. did admit that he uh, had to rely on hair transplants. Yeah. yeah. I'm so, I'm right. so, I, I was so about Steve. to start drinking Steve. the alkaline water. I mean, come on. <laughs> Put down the baking soda. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I love that. So I want to talk about, cause I was a little bit, um, I was a little bit I don't, surprised. I guess I don't know why, but by some of the things that he seemed to say or do on the stand in your case. Um, but I think to get there, I don't know why, given the other things we know, like peeing out your cancer, I don't know why I was surprised. Um, but can you talk a little bit, BB, about how your case fit in in terms of the the criminal charges that were brought against him? Yeah, so the criminal charges, you know, on the one hand, they helped us. On the other hand, they hurt us. Um, so Young had many victims. Don Kelly, at the time that I tried the case, was the only one that survived. Everybody else had died under his care. And what he would do is he would push his diet, take their pain pills, isolate them from their family. And as he could tell that they were going to die, he would then tell them that they were cured. And they could go home and he would send them home with their family and they would die shortly thereafter because he didn't want a bunch of bodies on his ranch. Mm. So that was what the criminal trial was about. And when the prosecutors were first working on the criminal trial, they tried to reach out to Don Kelly to get her to support the prosecution. She absolutely refused. She was very protective of Young. She was still, you know, up to her neck in belief that if she continued to follow this, it was going to save her life. And so she was a problem for the prosecution, which came back to bite us because here she is now attacking his claims where up until that point, she had been his biggest supporter. Yeah. I mean, you really had to deal with, um, you know, you had, and, and you clearly did a good job, but you had to, you had to deal with that those tough facts and, and help the jury understand, um, you know, the mentality of why she would cover for him and, and how that affected her because she, she had so much going on that you had to kind of cover with the jury in terms of, you know, her cancer diagnosis, what's going on there, her sort of background and why she would sort of, you know, help the jury understand why she would be pursuing, you know, um, non-traditional, I mean, I want to call this non-traditional medicine, but why she wouldn't be pursuing traditional medicine. Um, you know, and then she's got her pregnancy, um, in the mix that's affecting what she, um, you know, I guess this is before maybe she goes to with young, but she gets, she's pregnant. So she slips from the diet. So then she worries that she's going to make herself sicker. You know, she's got all this stuff. And then the prosecution, you know, then she she lies, you know, and and protects this thing that she feels so strongly about. I mean, you had a lot. You had to make sure the jury could understand and, and still side with your client. How did you sort of. You know, I saw what you did in the closing, but how did you wrap your arms and approach the trial? How did you wrap your arms around that to make sure that the jury was going to, you know, feel for her? 
Yeah, it was really tough. And, you know, you never know what that jury is thinking. And this was one of those cases. I know in hindsight, it seems like such an easy case to win, given how crazy these theories are. But I I will say without that hindsight, as we were going through the case, we were thinking we could lose this. We could lose this on statute of limitations grounds. The jury could hate her because she ended up marketing for young and bringing more victims in. You know, the the jury could align her with the devil instead of seeing her as a victim. Um, And when we know what we know now, it seems insane that she would believe all of this stuff. So we were walking several different tightropes all over the place. Um, I will say our biggest asset there uh, was Dawn Callie herself. Not only Dawn Callie in present day, she did phenomenally on the stand. She was very truthful. She owned her responsibility, which was big. Um, But Dawn Callie back when she was at the ranch getting treatment, we had the benefit of having her journals where we could read exactly what she was thinking when she was going through that treatment and when she was turning away from traditional medical treatment, she was very frustrated with herself that she couldn't only eat uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, she thought that she was the problem. Young told her and other victims, you know, it, that if if they were following his program, which was really hard, you know, if you didn't follow his program, you're not cured because it's your fault because you didn't follow the program. For those few like Don Kelly who were dedicated enough to follow the program, well, it's your fault because it's your mind that's making you sick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, crazy things like that. I mean, because he he basically uh, said, what what was the one of the claims that he made about how uh, you don't get cancer, you have to work hard at like almost like you think yourself into getting uh, cancer and, um, you know, and, you know, just sort of. You know, the things that he would say in order to make sure that his victims kept following what he did, like saying, you know, if you don't commit yourself 100 percent to this, you'll fail and then you'll and then you'll get cancer and you'll die. Uh, Or, you know, if you don't hit it absolutely as hard as you possibly can or what I loved and you did such a great job in the closing is that every time they had a a drawback or, or something went wrong, it was their stinking thinking that caused it. And then he, you know, that was sort of his uh, motto of just, you know, don't let your stinking thinking get in the way of, you know, your, your cancer treatment. But um, I mean, just, just all kinds of things. I mean, it's almost like a a masterclass in how you uh, can manipulate and control people, especially that are in such a vulnerable position. Um, And, and I, and you can really understand from her perspective, why she protected him during the criminal investigation because you know one she believed but two she had invested so much of herself and so many years into this treatment that if she were to admit that this is all you know just been uh, fake then what has she been doing for the past several years you know i mean it, that's extremely hard for somebody to um to come up against and 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 i and you know and you also pointed out that you know people like steve jobs who are brilliant geniuses uh, you know, did the same types of treatments, you know, when they were faced with this, you know, this uh, illness that that is um, just so terrible. So it's it's not so hard to believe. But it, but yes, it is from a trial standpoint, it gives you a lot to overcome. Um, and I thought you all did just a, a, a fantastic job, obviously. 
Thank you. Yeah. yeah it totally made me think of, um, you know, the, um, y- y- that's how you manipulate people, you know, cults like, like Nexium and all those other cults, like sleep, sleep deprivation, you know, starvation, or, you know, basically these really restrictive diets, isolating people, you know, so there, you know, people aren't, necessarily thinking the way they would normally think they're getting manipulated by a master manipulator. So he ends up having to do like a few months of jail time. It sounded like during which I wasn't sure if it was during his criminal trial or what, but he was, he called his employee to, to destroy his, um, silver apple shoes. Do you want to talk, (laughs) tell us about that, Phoebe? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, he he knew when he was in jail that there was evidence that could be used against him if if they ever found it. And of course, you know, he didn't connect that. Oh, maybe maybe his jail calls are being monitored. Uh, So, you know, he thought he was real sly. Well, you know, he was in a lot of ways. He, He had manipulated a lot of people. So he calls an employee. Um, and in trying to get her to get rid of some evidence, he's he refers to them as his silver apple shoes. I mean, just the nerve, the nerve. <laughs> kind of like then, the, the Wizard of Oz, you know? Yeah, just- right. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life. 
videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. It sounded like from your closing that when that when he was trying to defend some of the things he's reported, like including the success rate or efficacy rate of his treatment, that he was basically prevented from documenting it because the prosecution had taken the records he needed to the the for the criminal case had taken the records that he would need to show that what he was saying was true. That was another great moment in the courtroom for me personally. The jury didn't see it, but you know, Young is up on the stand saying, "Well, I could show you all the people that I saved." if I had my files, but the, the big bad prosecutor took the files from me. So I can't show you how many people I've saved. Well, the prosecutor was sitting right next to me in the, in the audience. I was sitting back there for this particular piece of time. And she just about jumped out of her chair. And she said to me, call me on the stand. So after young got down, I called her. And as she's walking up to the stand, I'm saying, what am I supposed to ask you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. So nerve wracking. But then, I mean, that would be nerve wracking for me. You obviously thrive under this. Um, but so you get her to basically just call BS on all that stuff. She talked about the discovery process. She talked about what happens with the files. They absolutely did not destroy them. They, they gave them back. He has them. He could show them to you if he wanted. Ugh. I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, and, and you and you painted the picture of uh, I think it was it, was it his son's wife uh, was like on the street waiting for the files, and she's the one who picked him up and took him back, or something like that. Yeah, I mean it, the the whole family was involved in all of this. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the other things that you were really able to pursue was all these um, credentials that he said that that he had. Um, he didn't have, and he had all these inconsistencies between, you know, he said, he, he said he lectured at Harvard. He said he had gotten, you know, his doctorate, but then at the same time, he, he had gotten a doctorate in Birmingham, but he had never lived outside of Utah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of how that evidence came out in trial or, or was that a lot of stuff you were using either from the criminal case or from the deposition or how did that work out? Yeah, so we had some information from the criminal case, and we also had some information from the original investigator. But it was one of those things where I needed Young to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't have everything that I needed in the deposition. So um, when it comes to really a master class in cross-examination, one of the things that you need to think about is, okay, how do I ask these questions in a sequence so that the witness doesn't know where I'm going, but they box, box themselves in before I get to the punchline. And so that's why we talked about where he lived. It sounded like background. Where did you live from when to when? Did you ever live anywhere else? He thought we were just going over background, but what I was doing was boxing him into Utah so that I could prove that he never went to Birmingham. 
Yeah, I, I, that, that makes, I think that's so smart. And I'm, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit more about that, especially for newer lawyers, because I think, you know, cross-examination in general can be um, stressful. You're nervous and your adrenaline's going and that's good. It's trial. Um, there are these rules that we hear, like you said, like, don't ask the question you don't know the answer to, you know, don't ask these wise or open-ended questions, but especially when you know you are, um, you know, you're getting in there to ask, to cross-examine somebody who is a personality, who's a master manipulator. Um, you know, what else did you do? How did you think about how to approach his cross? Well, I mean, from a, from a general perspective, right, the general rule, if you have not tried a lot of cases, is don't ask the question you don't know the answer to. And even more than that, don't ask the question unless you have that exact question in a deposition and you can impeach this person if they go sideways on you. So that's the general rule. But there comes a time in your practice when you have enough trials under your belt that you can make the very quick judgment calls as to when to break the rules. Um, and so that was one of the things that happened in this case. My assessment of him from just having him on the stand for a brief period of time was that the more he talked, the more he was going to sink himself. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the kind of hubris that this guy had was just unbelievable. And he wanted a stage. And so the more I allowed him to speak, the more he gave me an avenue to, to box him in. When you were cross-examining him, and I'm imagining since he had been through a couple of criminal trials, you might have had uh, a lot of prior statements. But um, when you were cross-examining, did you get a sense of what the jury was thinking? Or could you tell from them? Were they, you know, with him or were they looking at this guy like, you know, you're full of it? I couldn't tell at all, which was terrifying, right? He um, he looked good on the stand. He sounded good on the stand. He used all those big words, all the professorial things that we have our experts do, like get up and, and point to things, use visuals. He did all of those things. He was a textbook, a, a, sorry, a textbook <laughs> expert witness. He And he was his own expert up there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it was scary because I didn't I didn't know if I was making points or if he had them wooed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's like you hit the nail on the head earlier. I think we we can we tend to do that this a lot on this show, Steve. Which is we know the result of the trial. We're talking about typically good results, and so it can be easy to look at it with the benefit of hindsight and be like, look at all these you know slam dunks. Look at all the point these points that BB scored, and forgetting about what it looks like in the beginning or what it feels like at the time. And you know, one of the defenses that that you had to deal with, BB, that you know I'm sure you saw coming a mile away, but but I. I think it like, you know, you spend all this time on somebody and their their fake credentials, you know, that he had and and that it wasn't scientifically valid or whatever. But, you know, one of the defenses you had to deal with that um, that Miss Callie knew he wasn't a doctor, you know, that she didn't think he was a medical doctor, that she, you know, had taken his class. So whatever was sort of. um she was kind of going into it with her eyes open, putting aside the fact that, you know, she worked for him, that that a lot of these misrepresentations didn't kind of didn't matter. I guess I understood to be the argument because she really, you know, she knew he wasn't a doctor. She didn't think he was an oncologist. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how you dealt with that? Yeah, that's where Don Kelly's history became really important. And, you know, this is where we step away from the facts and step into 
being a human being and what human beings do. And, and the fact that, you know, we all think that we're going to make good decisions in a situation like this, but the truth is we are so subject to our fears, our emotions, to persuasion from the people we trust. We're going to place a much higher value in the opinion of people that we trust on a personal level than maybe some expert who we've never met before and have no idea about his, uh, you know, his qualifications, his credentials, or, or who he is as a human being. That's why she trusted her aunt instead of trusting her doctor. Yeah. And when, and I now because of my daughter's journey, I know this firsthand. When you are faced with a scary diagnosis like that, that hope is so powerful. I mean, you want to hang on to every hope that you can find. And that's really what Robert Young was preying on. Mm -hmm. He was giving hope to the hopeless. Um, You, you know, you mentioned the human side and and we talked about the jury a little bit. And I want to back up and talk about jury selection because I'm wondering, you know, how much you got into, you know, the jurors views on traditional medicine, alternative medicine, and, and, and what you were really looking for in that regard. We got into it um, pretty deeply. Uh, I was fortunate. The first 12 on my jury panel that were in the box, I had three scientists from our local hospital. um, And I had a radiologist who could talk a little bit from the medical perspective. And so none of those people ultimately ended up on the jury, but they were very critical, I think, in educating the jury about the dangers of alternative medicine, about what it means to uh, do scientific research, to publish peer-reviewed articles. So a lot of the education was done by our experts who were on our initial panel. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> did you um, did you all focus group the case at all? We did. We had a focus group kind of late in the case. Um, you know, it... I can't say the focus group really helped us other than to identify that Don Kelly's involvement was a real problem, which, Mm -hmm. which we knew. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I I read part of the defense closing and um, other than pointing out some things that I thought were uh, obvious uh, mistakes or insulting, like where he says, uh, you know, I'm glad you finally let me out of my cage. And then, uh, compared your PowerPoint to a timeshare presentation um, after you had just put up such compelling evidence. Um, but I, I did think one of his arguments was interesting, and I'm wondering how you countered it, which was essentially that um, a, a breast cancer diagnosis on average has a life expectancy of seven years, and she had lived more than seven years. And I he may have not presented it in the way that he should have, but it, you know, you, you can kind of get where he's going there that, that, you know, she's already outlived, uh, you know, how long she's supposed to, even if none of this happens. So then, you know, you get into at that point, you know, what are the damages because she's, she's outlived how long she's supposed to live. And I'm just wondering, did, did any of that, I mean, I don't know if you talked to the jury afterwards, did any of that resonate with them and it, and regardless of what it did, how did you all counter that? And I know you had uh, an actual oncologist, which the defense didn't, um, but talk about how you countered that. Well, that was, that was a really 
dangerous defense for us because even our oncologists had to admit that, yeah, statistically speaking, she has now outlived, you know, the, the life expectancy that he would have given her, given her initial diagnosis. Um, he also had to admit that because she had not done any chemotherapy before she saw him, that there were more tools available to her now in the tool belt because she had not already exhausted them. So those are, you know, small little bits of information that can be taken out of context towards the argument that he really helped her. Um, but our oncologist, I think, was really effective in pointing out the incredible harm, right? That it's not just, did she get a few more years? No, that never should have been the equation. She should have survived this mm -hmm. with the surgery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure if I, if I mentioned that, but it was, it was very treatable um, when she started seeking help from, from young instead of, of traditional medicine. So the, the progression and what she ended up dealing with, and, and we talked before we recorded and um, she is still alive and, and as, as therapies sort of progress and more, more options come to available, come available to her, she's, she's still fighting. But, you know, she was left in a very di different situation than she would have been otherwise. Um, I wanted to talk about Danny before. I know I've been jumping around. I wasn't sure if you had something you wanted to get to first. No, no I think I, 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 I definitely wanted to get to damages because um, and as we'll talk through this, uh, you, you had a, basically, from what I can tell from your PowerPoint, had an ask or, you know, an amount that you were asking for. But the jury far exceeded that from what I can tell. And, and I, part of that seems to me that maybe they got really uh, annoyed or uh, agitated by the defense and by, uh, by Mr. Young. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I definitely talk, talk just, I guess, generally about how you presented damages in this case. And then, and then we can talk about what you think happened with regard to the jury. Yeah. So the toughest decision to make for me was how much to ask for, for future non-economic damages, right? There's no formula for that. And, um, I, I don't really know if the jury's with me, so I'm afraid to ask for too much, but you don't want to ask for too little either. If you don't shoot for the moon, you never get a big verdict. Right. So I had to tie it to something. And so what I tied it to was a million dollars for every year of life that she lost. The Court of Appeals has since told me that I can't do that. <laughs> so don't take this advice right, in right. California and then use it. Right. Um, but, you know, that's just a, a formula that made sense to me at the time. And so I think the total ask was somewhere around $45 million when you took into account her pain and suffering for the past. I think I asked for two or two and a half for the past. Um, nobody was more surprised in that courtroom than me when they started reading the verdict. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that they went so far above my ask. And so we we talked at length with the jurors after the trial to ask them how they got there. And there were two reasons they got there. Number one, not in my backyard. They wanted to shut him down. Right. And number two, and, and this is funny, I'll never forget this because the four person was chastising me. You know, I, I, I focus so hard on how to make my client look good, right? How to make my client somebody that they want to help. 
Um, and I focus on, on a lot of the problems that we've been talking about this whole time. And so I can get sometimes overly focused on the problems and, and miss out a little bit on the big picture of how amazing my client is. Well, the four person shook her finger at me and said, you undervalued her. <laughs> she is worth so much more than you think she is. Wow. It's, it's so interesting. And it's one of those things like Steve, I feel like we talk about a lot where, you know, you, there's the strategy of sort of owning, um, owning what you think are going to be the problems with the case or the warts in the case, or, you know, difficult background with your client versus the idea of just not talking about them or, you know, not spending that much time on them because any time you spend on them is emphasizing them. Um, but I think that's so, that can be so, um, like personal, right. That can vary so much humanizing. I mean, to me, it's, um, you, you, when you have bad facts and now of course, I guess it depends on what exactly the bad fact is, but generally you hit them head on, uh, and you, um, and talk about them because nobody sitting in that courtroom is perfect. Um, everybody has flaws, everybody has problems and, and, and it, is it's life. It's, it's what humanity is about. And, um, and, you know, I, I actually think BB that, uh, that, uh, four person telling you that just means that you really did let your client shine through and because right. she was able to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go above what was asked for. I mean, I, I think that actually shows she truly did shine in the courtroom and the jury obviously saw it. She did. Yeah. BB, what did you think when they came back in three hours? We got defensed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was going to say we we have a saying in our firm that you know, like if if we're if it's in the first like four hours, generally that's not good. It, it, the sweet spot is like four to twelve hours. Like the, you know, it gives them long enough to think about it, and they, but not too long. After twelve hours, it's not. It goes back into not good again. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I, that cool. three hours, I'd be worried. And we had a jury question and the jury question I perceived to be bad for us. So one of the claims that Young made was that recently he found, he discovered a new organ called the intercidium. There's actually, there's actually some truth to that. If you look it up later, <laughs> there, that is a new discovery, right? It, well, he question, made or somebody else made? Not him. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> not say, him. What? <laughs> it's right. It's right here on your elbow. No. Right. <laughs> but the question we got was: Can the court reporter read back the testimony regarding Young's discovery of the intercidium? And oh, I thought I would be. Oh no! Out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, oh it, did God. you find out from the jury uh, after talking with them why they were asking that question? Yeah. So I thought I thought maybe somebody knew about this and it lended him a lot of credence or maybe somebody Googled it and found that there might be some truth to that. And so that was very dangerous. The truth was there was one holdout on the jury who wanted to say that her reliance was not reasonable. And of all of the crazy testimony that we heard from Young. The one kernel of truth about the interstitium was the thing he didn't believe. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, oh man. BB, what do you think, like, aside from the justice that you were able to get for your client, what do you think that you were able to accomplish through the civil case or that the civil case was able to do that, that the criminal case um, 
you know, kind of c- couldn't do or is not as designed to do? Um, I think you need to shine a light on the lie, right? So that the world can see it. Young was bringing victims in from many other countries. I mean, he was a danger to the world. And so the world needed to hear about this verdict. It needed to be big to save people's lives. Um, and I think we accomplished that. You know, our our uh, verdict got uh, attention not only in the United States, in Canada, in the UK, in China, all over the world, people were talking about yeah. this verdict that exposed Young. Not only that, But recently, I got a phone call from another victim and was able to put that victim in touch with the prosecutor's office because that victim saw the verdict uh, and contacted me. Young is actually uh, bound over right now awaiting trial on additional criminal charges that will hopefully stick. Okay. I, I was wondering about that because you may because, you know, he had, had been convicted of practicing medicine without a license. And, and, and he had an earlier conviction in 2000, I think, back in Utah. But um, but it sounded like at the time of the trial that he was still basically pushing this and still going out and giving speeches. Is that right? Yes, he was pushing it on a national stage going out, giving speeches, still hosting retreats, still bringing more victims to his ranch. Uh, None of these things. He wasn't supposed to be doing any of these things, but it seemed like the system had failed. Yeah. Gosh, that's just why, you know, the the work that you did in this case is so important. And you hit the nail on the head, which is, you know, I don't... uh, That's where you get the attention a lot of times is is that verdict. And that's what ends up, you know, making the news spread a little bit more, especially when, you know, either something goes side in the in sideways in the criminal case or it gets slowed down or you know whatever what you're able to do in a civil case you know to me the articles that i read about the case and about, about that were inspired by the case about him were so um great and informative just to get that out there and i just i was reading it thinking like gosh how could he, he just despite the work that we do in the cases we talk about on the show so it was like, how could something like this happen? <laughs> um, but, oh my gosh. So just such a, such a terrific result and obviously so well-deserved and the punitive damages is always a nice touch because, you yeah. know, you already got a, a great verdict, but something that's designed, um, you know, purely to, pu- to punish a, a defendant like that has got to be especially satisfying. Very satisfying. <laughs> So, um, so I, I do want to uh, touch on BB because you mentioned that the that the uh, either the Supreme Court or Court of Appeals has said that that method of um, of presenting the damages you're not supposed to do that. And I and I guess I'm sitting here thinking, as you said that, I'm th- sitting here thinking, why? I mean, if you shortened somebody's life by a certain number of years, and you can prove that, and there's evidence, why can't you put a value on those years? I mean, what was their reasoning on that? Obviously, I'm with you. I think yeah, those exactly. years have value, <laughs> right. Right? right? I mean, if, if you have a wrongful death case, then the right. family gets to collect for all the loss of that time. And if you have somebody who just hangs on by a thread forever, you get to collect for that time. But if you've got somebody in the middle here who survives just long enough and is then going to die, now damages have been cut off and they're limited to four years. It, it seems like an anomaly to me. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, but the the reasoning of the Court of Appeals was that the jury instructions uh, instruct the juror, the jurors to um, award an amount of damages to compensate her for her pain, suffering, emotional distress, loss of enjoyment of life. And those are things that can only be experienced while she is alive. Interesting. But I mean, I guess I guess could you couch it as the fact that she's living and knows that her life has been cut short, that now there's a value for that. And one way to value that is by looking at how many years she's lost on that. So that that's what I did. I said that all, all of that loss is now she takes that on every day. She looks at her children. She experiences yeah. the emotional distress of knowing that she's going to leave them without a mother and the value is equal to, and it's that last step you can't do. You can't then say, well, the value is X number of dollars times the number of years she lost. So, so what, so was the verdict reduced then, or what, what's the status of it? It, it did get reduced. Uh, something a little over $20 million. Okay. Yeah. Not too sure. Um, Right, right. <laughs> um, did you um, find out the jury, like for the jury, how they came up with their numbers? Like, did they use your system, but just use bigger numbers? So what the jury told me is that uh, I actually had a, a husband of a lawyer on my jury and I asked him, how did they come up with the number? And well, they started at a verdict of 300 million. And then he said, well, if you give her a verdict of 300 million, they're going to take it away on appeal. It's got to be reasonable. And so they thought 105 was reasonable. And then they kind of worked <laughs> backwards from there. Wow. <laughs> wow. You re- that means you really, really did your job. Did, did, did they have um, anything else to say um, that surprised you or that you kind of t- have taken forward in terms of looking at other trials that you have had or will have? Um, really, the biggest surprise was how highly they valued my client. Um, that, I think, has given me a level of boldness now. I used yeah. to be sheepish mm-hmm. about the number. And now I think, you know, I undervalued Don. So I'm not going to make that mistake again. I might not get a jury who's willing to go over my number. I'm going to, I'm going to boldly ask for what my client is worth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, BB, this has been just a great interview and, uh, I want to make sure, is there anything that, uh, that we haven't, uh, told our listeners about the Cali versus Young case that you want to make sure that they know about? The most important piece of that verdict for me was no comparative. Right. Because I knew that Dawn as a mother carried the weight of the world on her and she knew she was leaving four children without a mother. And I knew she had to blame herself. Yeah. And so I asked the jury to verdicto from where, where we get verdict to speak the truth. I asked the jury to speak the truth to her and tell her it's not her fault so that she could live the remaining lives that she had with the piece of that knowledge. Um, yeah. And so when they read that verdict, everybody on the jury looked over at my client when the judge read zero percent comparative fault. Yeah. And I think that's really, uh, that, that's a tough, uh, call to make because I can tell you, you know, from our cases, we've had cases where, you know, we said, you know, in order for us to be credible in front of the jury, we're going to have to admit, have the, have our client admit that they, he or she made a mistake and that they should put some fault on it. 
Um, but yeah, but I mean, in this case, I mean, really, you know, and obviously probably the jury, I imagine saw that, that, you know, with him on the stand that even as much as they didn't like him, they could see how somebody, how people might believe what he's saying because he sounds authoritative and he's in, like you said, he's, uh, promising hope, you know, and, and when you're in that situation and you're looking for, you know, anything to, to get you out of the situation, then, then, you know, somebody like that seems like a savior. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's tremendous. Well, BB, thank you so much for coming on. I want to remind everybody, we've been talking about Don Cowley versus Robert Young uh, that resulted in a total verdict of $105,356,000 in 2018 in in San Diego, California. And our guest has been BB Fell. And if you want to look up BB, you you can go to fellfirm.com, F-E-L-L. BB, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need a positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.